and invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 15. Once again this morning, Matthew 15. If you are using a Bible in the chairs in front of you, it's page 821. The Scripture tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who would draw near to Him must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him diligently. Matthew has talked about faith in this book so far in, uh, at several points. And what is really instructive and sobering is that he's used an adjective to describe the faith of some of Jesus' disciples. It's not the most flattering of adjectives. He talks about little faith, their little faith, three times so far we've seen it in the book. The crowds were consumed with worry about how they would feed and clothe themselves. Oh, you of little faith, he says. Remember the disciples in the boat that were in despair for their lives, even though the king of all glory was with them? And he says, oh, you of little faith. Or when Peter gets out and he does exercise faith and he begins to walk on the water, but then after a while, instead of having his eyes fixed on the Lord, he begins to think about all of this crazy predicament that he's in and and he begins to sink and the Lord reaches down and he saves him and says, oh, you of little faith. Matthew's highlighted that several times and he'll do that even two more times throughout the course of this book. But here in this passage, we see a different descriptor, different adjective. This is an example of a very different sort. For in chapter 15, verse 28, we read Jesus answering, O woman, great is your faith. So we've seen little faith. This morning we get to see great faith in action. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So He's left Galilee and He's gone to Tyre and Sidon. We read about them earlier. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here's great faith exhibited by this woman. And I want you to notice three things about this woman this morning. First, her situation. 
And then her persistence. Finally, her commendation. With regard to her situation, notice, first of all, that she was an outsider, wasn't she? She was clearly an outsider to the people of God, to the grace of God. Matthew makes sure that we don't miss it. He highlights it in two different ways. First of all, he reminds us, or he tells us, that she was a woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon. These were the chief cities of an area called Phoenicia, which is just west of the Galilee area, the far northwest corner of the land of Israel, if you can kind of picture that in your mind. This was uh, a region that was right on the shores of the sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, these were very important towns because of their strategic location. As uh, major port cities, they were they became very wealthy. There was a lot of trade that passed through the cities, and, and uh, so they grew up. They were prosperous, and because of or in connection with their wealth and their prosperity, they grew proud, thinking that uh, they were blessed by the gods indeed, um, thinking that they were, as it were, gods themselves. And we read the common condemnation of the prophets. And of course, you know, it's, it's always a hard thing for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, isn't it? It's a miracle that any of us enter the kingdom of God, but it's especially evident when a rich man enters the kingdom of God. Well, these people, rather than submitting themselves to the God, the one true God of Israel, they raised themselves up against the people of God and they became the enemies of God and were soundly rebuked by a number of Old Testament prophets, including, of course, Ezekiel. The passage we read was chapter 28. That's actually the end of three chapters of condemnation for the cities of Tyre and Sidon. God predicted their destruction, pronounced woes upon them. These were his enemies. So anyone from there was clearly ostracized uh, from the people of God. Not only that, but Matthew makes sure that we know something about her that ties her back into the whole stream of the history of the Old Testament. He calls her a Canaanite. Now that's a kind of, probably already a kind of antiquated word by the time Matthew uses it. These people are not generally referred to as Canaanites any longer. That was a in fact, this is the only time I believe that the that the New Testament, certainly that Matthew uses that term to talk about anyone. She's called a Canaanite, and of course that brings to mind the whole Old Testament history with the people of God who are sent into, quote, the land of Canaan and all of the different tribal peoples in that land, while they have their own ethnic identities or their own cultural identities, are referred to sometimes just in general as the Canaanites. These are the people with whom Israel is not to intermarry or have any close connection or contact. 
They're to drive them out of the land and to exterminate those who resist. These people are, that is the Canaanites, are very wicked and under the condemnation of God. They were to have no part in the people of God. And the people of God were to have no part with them. They were to have no benefits that came to people, the people of Israel. In fact, the land of Canaan is described in Genesis 10 verse 19 as extending from Sidon in the northwest to Sodom in the southeast. It's two great principal bookend cities, paragons of ungodliness and wickedness. That's where this woman's from. She's a Canaanite, as it were. She's a descendant of those peoples. She's an inhabitant of the regions that were condemned by God throughout the Old Testament. And here, I think there is a parallel for us because the Bible teaches us that by nature, we are all outsiders to the people of God. We are all separated from the commonwealth of Israel, enemies of God under God's condemnation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were by nature the children of what? Wrath. Separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants and to the promises. We had no part in the covenants. We had no part in the promises. We were without hope and without God in the world. So this woman really is a picture of all of us by nature. And further, she is spiritually enslaved. She's, her daughter in particular, is in spiritual slavery. Right? Verse 22 tells us that she was severely oppressed by a demon. The devil had a real foothold in this family, in this woman's life, in the life of her family. We're not told how the demonic um, spirit manifested itself. Perhaps this girl, this daughter, had attempted to harm herself or was continuing to attempt to harm herself under demonic influence or harm her family or harm other people. Or perhaps she was suffering mental or physical issues as a result of this oppression. But she was just a slave, you know? And your heart has to kind of go out to somebody who is absolutely enslaved and oppressed by a hostile power. That's the way this girl was. She's a Canaanite. She's an outsider, first of all. And secondly, she's spiritually enslaved. And of course, the Bible tells us that that's true for all of us by nature, right? That too is true. So again, this woman is a picture for us. We were all enslaved to sin and the devil, maybe not possessed exactly by an evil spirit, but nevertheless, as 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 says, taken captive by the devil to do his will. That's the way the Bible describes us. 
we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were enslaved peoples, spiritually. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9 that those who are in the flesh do not submit to God's law. In fact, they cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Paul says. They're enslaved. It's the way you were. You used to be. You used to be. Enslaved. And and your slavery didn't look outwardly to other people like demon possession, perhaps. But you were just as truly enslaved to your selfishness and your self-righteousness and your pride and your envy and your bitterness and your lust and your anger and all of the all of the evil of your heart was just ruling you. Now, this woman, an outsider, spiritually enslaved, oppressed by the enemy, she comes to Jesus for help. And what stands out about this is her persistence. Don't you think? Did you notice that as we read? Again and again and again. In fact, Matthew records no less than four exchanges that take place between this woman and the Savior. First, her initial petition in verse 22. Just We'll kind of work down through it here in the text. She says, Coming to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She calls him Lord or Master, acknowledging his authority. And she refers to him as the son of David, which has clear messianic overtones. It seems as if this woman has somewhere been exposed to the truth, the truth about Jesus Christ and about the, the promise of the Messiah. And she has come to believe, to be willing to confess her faith in Him as that Messiah. Either that or she speaks a lot better than she knows. There certainly is something she's moving in that direction of a fuller understanding of who this man is. And she comes because of that persuasion, she comes to him, believing that with the Messiah's coming, comes healing. For isn't that exactly what the prophets foretold? He will cause the lame to walk and the blind to see. He will deliver those who are oppressed. And she was oppressed. Her daughter was oppressed. He came to bind up the enemy and to set his captives free, and she needed to be free. So she comes to him in this initial petition, but notice what happens next. This is the really kind of amazing thing, and this is where the story begins to take a twist that we that causes us to scratch our heads, right? Because Jesus' answer to her initial petition is... Silence, verse 23, the beginning of verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Now, have you ever felt like that? 
and you poured out your heart to God and just felt like your prayers were almost like bouncing off the ceiling, like the heavens were brass, like God has abandoned you, like He's not hearing, like He's not going to ever answer you, like you have been forgotten. Have you ever felt like that? I would dare say that most Christians have probably had a season or seasons of their lives. Most people who have walked with God or drawn near to God have had seasons like that. The psalmists certainly knew what that was like. How many of the songs are punctuated with, Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Why are you abandoning me? How long must I go on like this? These are real heart statements of real people of God. The Song of Solomon that I mentioned earlier actually depicts this through the imagery of a marriage. And her heart is sick at one point in the story because of her lover's absence. If you have experienced this, this silence of God as the heaven's only answer, then you're not alone. It is the periodic experience of the people of God. And God is at work, even in the silence, in drawing out your heart. And I think that's what we'll see as this story progresses. Secondly, she comes to him again with her continual crying. She cries out after him and and even after his disciples. Verse 23, middle of the verse, his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. This is present tense, ongoing. She just keeps making this petition, this help me, help me. Oh Lord, please come. I need you. Help. Without you, I'm trapped. I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm a slave. You know, we're oppressed by the enemy. Help. She just continues to cry out to him. And his response to this in this second interaction is to remind her that she deserves nothing from him. Notice verse 24. He answers her this way. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's true. He came to save his people from their sins, the angel said. Isaiah says he was stricken for the transgression of my people. But she's not one of his people. At least she hasn't been. She's an outsider, right? She's not an inheritor of the promises. She's an alien to the people of God. She's estranged from the community of the blessed. Often the very first thing that a sinner feels, listen, 
often the very first thing that a sinner feels from Christ is not His love and grace, but their sin and their alienation and their condemnation. They feel the weight of what they really deserve. That is often the first necessary step in experiencing what grace is. There's a poem, I believe by John Newton, where he envisions himself at the foot of the cross and the Savior looks upon him. And the first look of the Savior causes the whole weight of his guilt to just weigh heavy on his shoulders. He feels his distance from that one who died for him. He feels that his sin nailed him to the cross. But it's a second look that is the look of mercy and grace. That is a look that reveals the heart of Christ in light of what He deserves. And that's what makes grace grace. Jesus begins His interaction with this woman, or He continues His interaction with this woman, by reminding her that she deserves nothing from Him. But yet the woman is undeterred. And she comes again, directly to the Lord. And this third time now, she makes her humble supplication to Him. In verse 25, she came, she knelt at His feet. She knelt before Him and said, Lord, help me. That's a pretty simple prayer, isn't it? And sometimes that's the only thing I can pray. Have you ever had times like that? Where all you could say was, Lord, help Lord, help. Please help me. Be merciful to me. Oh God, please help. So she casts herself again at His feet. She's humble. She kneels before Him. She knows her place. She's not making demands. She's hoping for mercy. And once again, Jesus' response emphasizes that she has no claims upon him. Again, Jesus does this. Look at it. Verse 26, he says, It is is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs, of course, you know, an unclean animal like this unclean woman, this Gentile woman outside of the the fellowship of the people of God. It may seem to some of us, at first reading anyway, before we know too much about the Savior, that He's being very insensitive to this woman, even rude perhaps. Why is He treating her like this? What's going on? And of course, You know, part of it is we're reading 
black words on a white page rather than seeing a living interaction that's taking place between two human beings with the inflections of the voice and the look of the face and the, and the, and the, uh, the way the eyes may tell a lot more than just what the words say. So there's certainly a lot going on here. I want to assure you that the Lord intends from the very beginning to heal her child. And I say that because of clear statements that we have about the very nature and character and purposes of God, such as Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Now, like Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29, the God of Israel is not a man that he should regret, that he should have regret. Or James 1, 17, every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Lord's intention from the very beginning, I say again, was to heal this woman, to heal her her daughter, to deliver her from this oppression and to grant His grace. But what happens is that from our vantage point, okay, we have to recognize that we're at a different we're at a different vantage point. The way we experience the working out of God's unchanging purposes in time is through persistent, protracted prayer. And that's what this woman's exhibiting. It is through arguing with God and reasoning with God. I'm not talking about arguing with God as in you're angry and bitter at God, but I mean reasoning with God from His His own revelation, from His Word, reminding God of His promises like Abraham, like Moses, arguing and wrestling with God in prayer. That's the way that God works out His unchanging purposes in our actual experience of of life. It is through reminding God of His character and His promises, though we are really only reminding ourselves, right? As the psalmist says, we should pray. Psalm 25, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Isaiah 62, verse 7 is such a powerful passage on this. Again, Isaiah 62, verse 7, commends those who quote, listen to this, those who put the Lord in remembrance, that is to remind the Lord, those who quote, take no rest, and in fact give Him no rest, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. They're commended. People who go to God and wrestle with God in prayer and argue for God to fulfill His promises. This is not presumption, okay? We're not making God give us a Ferrari 
because we really want it badly enough. These people are praying for the will of God to be done. Say, well, if the will of God to be, is going to be done, why do, you, why do you need to pray for it? Because God determined that that should be the way it should happen. He moves the heart of His people to pray and to pray earnestly and to pray persistently and to not give up until He brings about what He has purposed to do. Say, well, I'm not quite sure I understand that. Well, that's okay. Welcome to the club. But get on your knees and cry out to God. Pray that God would work out these things that your heart so longs for. If your heart is really in tune with His, and your desires are His desires, pray that they may be done. And give Him no rest until He does what He's promised to do. What He has revealed in His Word. This is what we experience. This is the means by which God intends to work His will. Persistent, protracted petition. He desires for us in our prayers to be in earnest. To be in earnest about our needs, about our desires, to be as earnest as He is. And so He tests us and stretches our faith in the prolonging of our prayers and the waiting on Him for the answer. This is what He's about. This is what He's about in the life of this woman. And she exhibits a great faith. And she prays and she prays and she prays like Jacob wrestling with the angel. And at the end, he is broken, bodily broken, and he's weeping, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. He finally comes to the point in his life where he says, God, I need you. Without you, I can do what? Nothing. Has God ever made you desperate for Him like that? I think one of the greatest graces of the Christian life is the grace of desperation. Spiritual desperation to where you know that if God does not intervene for you, all your striving is in vain. And you get on your knees and you don't just pray, you pray in earnest. How many times has that happened? We can count many, many times where we've gone to God and prayed and it's just been so much just going through the motions. And and not every prayer is as as, uh, emotional as every other prayer. But what God is doing, what He intends to do in the working out of His purposes is to draw His people's heart out in protracted prayer, in earnestness. And when He answers, it is all the more glorious and it is all the more powerful a testimony to us that it was all His work and His doing and not just our own. 
Though, of course, we pray to check off our box sometime and then say, well, God answered. But when we have to pray like this, we know God answered. God delights in doing that. He, he does so often work exactly like that. Some of you all I know have been praying and laying your heart out to the Lord again and again and again, beseeching Him. Jesus is not being insensitive. He's not being rude. He's drawing this woman out. As one author put it so well, A good teacher, he says, a good teacher may sometimes draw out a pupil's best insight by a deliberate challenge, which does not necessarily represent the teacher's own view, even if the phrase devil's advocate might not be quite appropriate in this context. (laughs) This is what the Lord is doing. He's challenging her faith. He's putting her to the test. He's drawing out the faith that he knows is in her heart, that he has worked in her heart. And so, he's about her good in this. And it is manifested in their fourth interaction, which is in verse 27, um, in her humble persistent hope for not what she deserves, but just for pure mercy. And she answers in verse 27, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She acknowledges her situation. She knows and she acknowledges she's an outsider to the people of God. She's undeserving. She has no rightful claims upon him. She still acknowledges him, even yet after all of this, as Lord, Master, recognizes his authority as from God. And whether she knows it or not, she's actually expressing a very deeply biblical theology. Because the dogs, the Gentiles, would, in fact, be recipients of God's grace, wouldn't they? That was God's plan from the very beginning. This was always His intention. Through Abraham, God said, I will bless what? All of the nations of the earth. The gospel comes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Those who were not my people will become My people, those who were alienated and strangers by the blood of Jesus Christ are now brought near. This is the plan of God. And again, whether she knows it or not, she's she's echoing this, this deeply biblical theology. She's pressing on in her faith and her dependence and her humility before the one who owes her nothing, petitioning him yet for a crumb of mercy and to such faith He gives affirmation and commendation. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Kind of like the servant or the son of the 
the Roman legionnaire, right? Remember that? Jesus healed him from a distance. Here's a woman who likewise displays such great faith, the kind of faith not found among even the people of Israel, as he said a few chapters ago. Remember, he said it would be better for the cities of Tyre and Sidon than for you who are supposedly the people of God who have no faith at all. Well, now here's a one from the region of Tyre and Sidon itself who expresses a grace, a faith that is beyond anything that has been seen. And it's the only time in the whole book of Matthew that a faith is called great. That faith is manifested in persistence in prayer. Laying hold of God, claiming His promises, reminding Him of His own character, reasoning him with Him from the Word, and just not letting Him go. Like the persistent neighbor in the story that Jesus told. You all remember the story? The friend comes from out of town. He has nothing to feed him. He knocks on his neighbor's door. Don't bother me. My kids are asleep. We're in bed. He knocks again. Don't bother me. We're asleep. We're in bed. He knocks again. And finally, because of his persistence, the friend comes down and gives him what he needs. Or Jesus told the story of the persistent widow who came to the judge to hear her case, to give her justice, and the judge being an unjust judge, only in it for the bribe, knowing what he could get for himself, and he couldn't get anything from this poor woman, says, I won't hear your case. But she comes the next day, she says, hear my case, I want justice. And he says, go away, I'm too busy. He comes again the next day, hear my case. And then because of her persistence, even though he's unjust, yet because of her persistence, he gives her the justice that she is looking for. The point of all this is not to teach us that God is reluctant to give us what is good for us, like the friend or the judge in fact, Jesus said, if evil, if even evil people will do that, then how much more will your Father who intends good for you give in response to your persistent, earnest prayers? And so He taught us that we should always pray and not give up, not faint. And so maybe you have, you have been petitioning the Lord, seeking His face, and it sometimes feels like He's far from you, or that you don't know if He's answered you. You're waiting, you're praying and praying and praying. Perhaps you're praying for His salvation, that He would make you His child. And that assurance just seems to be so slow in coming or you're praying for spiritual renewal and revival, that your heart would not be dry anymore, that He would come and draw you near to Him. Like the lover in the Song of Songs, you say, where is He? Where is my beloved? Tell Him that my heart is sick. And she searches the highways and the byways, and maybe that's where you are, or you're waiting on God for victory, real, just 
definitive victory over some stubborn sin in your life and you're praying and you're praying and you're seeking His face and you're hearing the Word and you're praying for deliverance or maybe you're seeking God for clear direction and guidance or provision and it seems like the heavens are brass. This is a testimony of the heart of the Savior who puts us in just those places to draw out our faith. To pull out what He has put in there, that confidence that we need Him. That nothing else will do but Christ. That if He doesn't help us, we will have no help in all the world. That confidence to draw that out, to exhibit, to set on display that great faith that He is working in us. So persevere, brothers, in prayer. Be earnest, dear sisters, with the Lord when God seems to hide from you or to frustrate your plans. Pray it through. That's the way I think of it a lot of times. Pray it through. I pray. Have you ever done that? You, 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 Lord, I need you. Please help. And, and it seems like nothing is out there. You're just praying empty words into space. So what do you do? You can grow angry. You can grow bitter. You can grow skeptical. And you can walk away. Or you can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pour your soul out. And pray it through. When you don't feel, pray it through. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying until you feel, until you know how much you need Him, and until you are sure that He's heard and answered you. Pray it through. Know that what God is doing, that what Christ is doing for you is just the same as He did for this dear woman whom He loved. He's stretching you. He's testing you. He's drawing out your heart. Know that He intends for you to labor with Him, to labor with Him through prayer, in reasoning with Him and reminding Him and arguing with Him from His own revelation. Know that you are not alone in that experience. I mentioned John Newton a minute ago. Listen to the testimony of this man, this famous hymn writer and pastor. He says, I asked the Lord, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the, evil, the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more than this, 
With his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all my fair designs I schemed. Humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thine all in me. And that is so often the testimony of the people of God who cry out to him day and night, waiting. And I pray that he would graciously draw out your faith and mine. That in the end we would say, in spite of the waiting, where else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray and pray and pray again. May the Lord be merciful. Our Father, please be especially mindful and gracious to your children who are experiencing this protracted delay. Please, Lord, we ask that you would not Test them beyond their ability. Please remember that they are dust. Please work out in them what you are working, what you have planned, but do it mercifully, patiently. Lord, by your word today, give them and encouragement in their faith, we ask. Sustain us all with the goodness of your character and the perfection of your purposes so that we may wait on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.